Chapter 5 of Oliver Cromwell and the Rule of the Puritans in England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Oliver Cromwell and the Rule of the Puritans in England by Charles H. Firth. Chapter 5. At the opening of the campaign of 1643, the strength of the Royalists had greatly increased and before its close the advantage had passed to the king. In almost every county, towns and castles were garrisoned, and rival leaders, raising troops for king or parliament, waged war against each other with varying fortunes. In the north and in the west of England, the royalists rapidly gained the upper hand, and these local successes exercised a decisive influence on the course of the general war. In April 1643, Essex, with 16,000 foot to 3,000 horse, advanced towards Oxford and captured Ridding, April 27th. Hampton urged him to follow up on this advantage by besieging Oxford, which was weakly fortified and ill-provisioned. But Essex's army was mutinous for want of pay, and decimated by a great sickness which broke out in his camp after the fall of Ridding. He did not resume the movement on Oxford till June and in the meantime the king had been strongly reinforced. With his diminished numbers, Essex was unable to invest Oxford, and in the small encounters which took place round it, his troops were generally worsted. At Chalgrove Field, on June 18th, Hampton was mortally wounded, and his death a week later was as great a blow to his party as the loss of a battle. Every honest man, wrote a fellow officer, hath a share in the loss, and will likewise in the sorrow. He was a gallant man, an honest man, an able man, and take all, I know not to any living man's second. In his short military career, he had shown an energy, a decision, and a strategic instinct which seemed to mark him out as a future general. After Hampton's death, Essex fell back from Oxford and remained inactive, permitting the king to effect a junction with the royalists of the north and of the west. In the north, the Marquis of Newcastle, had overrun the greater part of Yorkshire, and cooped up Lord Fairfax and his son Sir Thomas in the West Riding. On June 30th, he routed the two Fairfaxes at Adwalton Moor, near Bradford, and forced them to take refuge in Hull, the only fortress which the Parliament now held in Yorkshire. The Queen had landed at Bridlington in February, and these successes enabled her to march south and join Charles at Oxford with arms, ammunition, and reinforcements. In the West, during the same period, a little army of Cornishmen under Sir Ralph Hopton won victory after victory over the Parliamentarians. At Braddock Down, on January 19, 1643, Hopton defeated General Ruthven at Stratton. On May 16th, he beat Lord Stamford. Then, joined by Prince Maurice and the Marquis of Hertford, he advanced into Somersetshire and fought a drawn battle with Sir William Waller at Lansdowne near Bath on July 5th. Followed by Waller, Hopton continued his march towards Oxford and was blocked up in Devizes with his infantry by his pursuer. But the retreat of Essex had enabled the king to move freely and had left Waller unsupported. On July 13th, the very day when the queen reached Oxford, Wilmot and a body of horse sent from Oxford routed Waller's army at Roundaway Down and rescued Hopton's hard pressed army. Thus, by the end of July, the royalists were masters in the field and Charles could take the offensive. 
The king's original plan had been that he should hold Essex in check, whilst Newcastle advanced from the north into Essex, and Hopton made his way through the southern counties towards Kent. All three were then to close in upon London and strike down rebellion in its headquarters. But now Newcastle's army refused to march southwards whilst Hull was uncaptured, and the western army hesitated to advance farther whilst Plymouth was not taken. Local feeling was too powerful to be neglected, and Charles was forced to complete the subjugation of the west instead of advancing upon London. On July 26th, Bristol, the second port in the kingdom, surrendered to Prince Rupert Gloucester, was besieged on August 10th, and though vigorously defended by Colonel Massey, it seemed certain to fall, for the Parliament had no army available to relieve it. Waller, exulted the Royalists, is extinct, and Essex cannot come. Once more, Pym and the Parliament appealed to the city, and London responded with a zeal which no disasters could chill. The citizens closed their shops, six regiments of London train bands joined the shattered army of Essex, and with 15,000 men at his back, the Earl marched for Gloucester. Vainly, Rupert and the King's horse strove to delay his progress. At his approach, the besiegers drew off their forces without fighting, and Gloucester was saved. As the Parliamentarians returned to London, the King barred their way at Newbury, and forced them to cut their way through or perish, September 20th. This time the Parliamentary horse fought well, but it was the firmness and courage of Essex's infantry which preserved the army. The London train bands, whom the Cavaliers had derided, stood as a bulwark and rampire to defend the rest, and received charge after charge of Rupert's horse, with their pikes as steadily as if they had been drilling on their parade ground. Long training and military exercises had given them the readiness, order, and dexterity in the use of their arms, which compensated for their inexperience of actual war. Step by step the parliamentary army gained ground, till the failure of the king's ammunition obliged him to retreat and leave the passage free. Essex re-entered London in triumph. Gloucester was saved, and his army was safe, but ridding. The one trophy of his year's fighting was abandoned again to the royalists. The year 1643 closed gloomily for the Parliament. Except Gloucester, Plymouth, and a few ports in Dorsetshire, all the west was the king's. The north was his except Hull and Lancashire, and in the Midlands the Parliamentarians held their own with difficulty. Only in the eastern counties had the Parliament gained strength and territory, and it was to Cromwell more than any other man that his isolated success was due. At the close of 1642, Parliament had passed an ordinance associating the five counties of Norfolk, Suffolk, Essex, Cambridge, and Hertfordshire for the purpose of common defense, December 10, 1642. The Eastern Association, as it was termed, was completed by the accession of Huntingdonshire in May 26, 1643, and finally of Lincolnshire, September 20, 1643. Cambridge was its headquarters and Cromwell was from the first its guiding spirit. On his march from London in January 1643, Cromwell seized the royalist high sheriff of Hertfordshire, as he was proclaiming the king's commission of array in the marketplace of St. Albans, and sent him up to London, January 14th. In February, he was at Cambridge busily fortifying the town and collecting men to resist a threatened attack from Lord Capel. In March, 
he suppressed a royalist rising at Lowestoft, taking prisoners, many gentlemen, and good store of pistols and other arms. A few days later, he disarmed the royalists of Lynn. In April, those of Huntingdonshire shared the same fate, and on April 28th he recaptured Crowland, where the king's party had established a garrison. Whenever royalist raiders made a dash into the association, or disaffected gentry attempted a rising, Colonel Cromwell and his men were swift to suppress them. It's happy, he wrote, to resist such beginnings betimes, and he never failed to do so. Meanwhile, the notion which Hampton had thought impracticable was rapidly becoming a fact. Cromwell's one troop of eighty horse had become the nucleus of a regiment. By March 1643, he had five troops, and by September, ten. When the new model army was constituted, his regiment had become a double regiment of fourteen full troops, numbering about eleven hundred troopers. Above all, they were men of the same spirit as their colonel. His original troop had been carefully chosen. He had a special care, writes Baxter, to get religious men into his troop. These men were of greater understanding than common soldiers, and making not money, but that which they took for public felicity to be their end. They were the more engaged to be valiant. The new additions were of the same quality. Pray raise honest, godly men, and I will have them of my regiment, Cromwell promised the town of Norwich. My troops increase, he told a friend a few weeks later. I have a lovely company. You would respect them did you know them. They are no Anabaptists. They are honest, sober Christians. The officers were selected on the same principle. If you choose godly, honest men to be captains of horse, honest men will follow them, and they will be careful to mount such, wrote Cromwell to the Committee of Suffolk. When he could get gentlemen, he preferred them, but godliness and zeal for the cause were the essentials. I had rather have, said he, a plain, russet-coated captain that knows what he fights for and loves what he knows, than that which you call a gentleman and is nothing else. I honor a gentleman that is so indeed. It may be it provokes some spirits to see such plain men made captains of horse. It had been well that men of honor and birth had entered into these employments. But why do they not appear? But seeing it was necessary, the work must go on. Better plain men than none. What struck observers first was the rigid discipline which Cromwell enforced not only in his own regiment, but in all men under his command. No plundering was permitted, reported a newspaper. No man swears, but he pays his twelve pence. If he be drunk, he is set in the stocks or worse. How happy were it if all the forces were thus disciplined. The next notable fact was that they were better armed than other regiments, as well as better disciplined. Besides the sword, each trooper had a pair of pistols, but not carbines or other firearms. For defensive arms, they had simply a light helmet or pot, and a back and breast of iron. Thus, while adequately protected, they were lighter and more active than fully equipped cuirassiers. And while adequately armed, they had no temptation to adopt the tactics of mounted infantry or dragoons. Moreover, from the beginning, Cromwell's men were taught to charge home, and to rely on the impact of their charge and the sharpness of their swords. They were well mounted and many of them owned the horses they rode, being, as Whitelock says, freeholders 
or freeholders' sons, who upon matter of conscience engaged in this quarrel. Others were provided from the stables of royalists, and one of Cromwell's letters is a defense of an officer who had seized the horses of malignants to mount his troop. A great lover of horses and arms himself, Colonel Cromwell made his men keep both in good condition. Cromwell, says a royalist writer, used them daily to look after, feed, and dress their horses, and, when it was needful, to lie together on the ground, and besides taught them to clean and keep their arms bright and to have them ready for service. Men of such a spirit, armed, mounted, drilled, and disciplined with care, soon proved their superiority both to the king's troops and to those of Essex and Waller. That difference, says Clarendon, was observed shortly from the beginning of the war, and though the king's troops prevailed in the charge and routed those they charged, they never rallied themselves again in order, nor could be brought to make a second charge again the same day, whereas Cromwell's troops, if they prevailed or though they were beaten and routed, presently rallied again and stood in good order till they received new orders. In May 1643, Essex ordered the forces of the eastern counties and the east midlands to unite in order to relieve Lincolnshire, and if possible, to penetrate the Yorkshire and assist the Fairfaxes. Cromwell was eager to carry out his orders, but first one, then another local commander declined to leave his particular locality unprotected. Better it were that Leicester were not, said Cromwell, than that there should not be found an immediate taking of the field by our forces to accomplish the common ends. He himself set out for Lincolnshire, and at Grantham, on May 13th, defeated a royalist force twice the size of his own. The royalists were beaten mainly through their inferior tactics. Their commander had 21 troops and some dragoons to Cromwell's 12, but he never attempted to charge. The two bodies of horse stood about musket shot from each other, and their dragoons exchanged shots for about half an hour. Then, says Cromwell's dispatch, they not advancing toward us, we agreed to charge them. We came on with our troops at a pretty round trot, they standing firm to receive us, and our men charging fiercely upon them. By God's providence they were immediately routed and ran all away, and we had the execution of them two or three miles. Ten days later, Cromwell reached Nottingham and joined the forces of Lincolnshire and Derbyshire, but with all his eagerness he could get no farther. The three commanders quarreled, and one of them, Captain John Hotham, was secretly in correspondence with the Royalists. To add to Cromwell's difficulties, some of his soldiers were unpaid and mutinous, though he wrote urgently for money. It was a trouble continually recurring in his letters throughout his campaign, because parts of the association were always behind hand in paying the men that they raised. Lay not too much, he appealed to one defaulter, upon the back of a poor gentleman who desires without much noise to lay down his life and bleed the last drop to serve the cause and you. I ask not your money for myself, if that were my end and hope, v. the pay of my place, I would not open my mouth at this time. I desire to deny myself, but others will not be satisfied. Till the end of June, Cromwell stayed in Nottingham, defeating the Newark garrison in skirmishes and hoping at least to bar the Queen's march south but his fellow commanders left him, and so he was obliged to fall back into the association and leave the Fairfaxes to be crushed at Adwalton Moor. Now came the hour of danger for the association. Backed by Newcastle's army, the royalists of the neighboring counties began to press over its borders. 
one party threatened Peterborough and garrisoned Burley House near Stamford. Another body besieged Lord Willoughby, the commander of the Lincolnshire Parliamentarians in Gainsborough. Cromwell came to the rescue with his usual speed, captured Burley House and its garrison on July 24th, and, gathering what force he could get from Nottinghamshire and Lincolnshire, hurried to the relief of Gainsborough. Colonel Cavendish faced him with a body of royalist horse posted on the edge of a sandy plateau outside of town, and Cromwell's men had to mount it before they could attack. Before they were completely formed, the royalist horse advanced, but Cromwell would not wait to receive their charge. In such order as we were, says he, we charged their great body. We came up horse to horse, where we disputed it with our swords and pistols a pretty time, all keeping close order, so that one could not break the other. At last they a little shrinking, our men perceiving it, pressed in upon them, and immediately routed the whole body. Part of the parliamentarians followed the chase five or six miles, but Cromwell halted three troops of his regiment as soon as he could, and it was well he did so, for in the meantime Cavendish and his reserve beat the Lincoln troops, forming the parliamentary second line, and were hotly pursuing them when Cromwell with his three troops fell on their rear, and drove them down the hill and into a bog. Cavendish was killed by Cromwell's lieutenant, and his regiment scattered to the winds. Powder and provisions were thrown into the besieged town, and the van of the parliamentarians were actively engaged in attacking a body of royalists, discovered on the other side of Gainsborough. When Newcastle's army arrived, fifty companies of foot, and a great body of horse. To fight was hopeless. There was nothing left for the parliamentarians but to retreat if they could. The foot drew off with some confusion and took refuge in the town. The horse, under Cromwell's command, were withdrawn in good order from position to position. Four troops of his regiment, under Major Wally, and four Lincoln troops under Captain Ayscoff, alternately retiring and facing the enemy, covered the withdrawal. They, with this handful, faced the enemy and dared them to the teeth in. At the least, eight or nine several removes, the enemy following at their heels. And they, though their horses were exceedingly tired, retreating in order near carbine shot of the enemy, who thus followed them, firing upon them, Colonel Cromwell gathering up the main body and facing them behind those two lesser bodies. In this order he effected his retreat to Lincoln without loss. Without a greater force it was impossible to drive Newcastle back, and in announcing his victory Cromwell appealed for reinforcements. God follows us with encouragements. They come in season, as if God should say, Up and be doing, and I will stand by you and help you. There is nothing to be feared but our own sin and sloth. If I could speak words to pierce your hearts with the sense of our and your condition, I would. Two thousand foot must be raised at once if they meant to save Gainsborough. If somewhat be not done, in this you will see Newcastle's army march up into your bowels, being now as it is, on this side, Trent. I know it will be difficult to raise thus many in so short a time, but let me assure you, it's necessary and therefore to be done. Parliament realized the imminence of the danger. On the day of Cromwell's victory at Gainsborough, it had appointed him governor of the Isle of Ely. A week later, he received the special thanks of the house for his faithful endeavors to God and the kingdom, and was voted £3,000 for his troops. On August 10th, an ordinance was passed authorizing the associated counties to raise 10,000 foot 
and 5,000 horse to be commanded by the Earl of Manchester. It seemed, however, as if the eastern counties would be overrun before the new army could be raised. Gainsborough was taken. Lincoln was abandoned. All Lincolnshire except Boston fell into the power of the Royalists. In Norfolk, Lynn raised the king's standard. However, Newcastle turned back with the bulk of his forces to besiege Hull. And while Manchester, with all the foot he could get together, besieged Lynn, Cromwell with his cavalry made a bold march into Lincolnshire. Sir Thomas Fairfax, who was shut up in Hull with his father, had with him twenty-one troops of horse, useless for the defense of a town, but capable of changing the fortune of the campaign if added to Cromwell's force. Fairfax shipped them down the Humber in boat to Saltfleet in Lincolnshire, thus evading the attempts of Newcastle's cavalry to intercept him, and effected his junction with Cromwell. Both then joined Manchester, who had by this time captured Lynn, and in October the joint army set about the reconquest of Lincolnshire. The Cavaliers of Lincolnshire and part of Newcastle's cavalry, headed by Lord Widrington and Sir John Henderson, fought them at Winsby on October 11th. Cromwell led the van, seconded by Sir Thomas Fairfax. Immediately after their dragooners had given the first volley, says a parliamentary narrative, Colonel Cromwell fell with a brave resolution upon the enemy, yet they were so nimble as that within half pistol shot they gave him another, his horse was killed under him at the first charge, and fell down upon him, and as he rose up he was knocked down again by the gentleman who charged him, but afterwards he recovered a poor horse in a soldier's hands, and bravely mounted himself again. Truly this first charge was so home-given, and performed with so much admirable courage and resolution by our troops, that the enemy stood not another, but were driven back upon their own body, which was to have seconded them, and at last put them into a plain disorder, and thus in less than half an hour's fight they were all quite routed. Thirty-five colors, and nearly a thousand prisoners were the trophies of the victors. Lincoln and Gainsborough fell into their hands a few weeks later. Moreover, on the very day of the victory of Winsby, Lord Fairfax sallied forth from Hull, beat Newcastle from his trenches, and forced him to raise the siege in disorder. Thus the association was secured from invasion, Lincolnshire conquered, and the Parliament's hold on Yorkshire maintained. So closed Cromwell's second campaign. He had shown a skill in handling cavalry very rare amongst the courageous knights and squires who rode forth a colonelling. He kept his promise to Hampton, raised men of such a spirit that they never turned their backs to the enemy, and disciplined them so that they were an example to all the troops of the Parliament in camp or in battle. The general recognition of his great services was shown by two facts. On February 16, 1644, Parliament appointed a new committee for the management of the war, called, because it included representatives of Scotland, the Committee of Both Kingdoms. Cromwell had not been a member of the Committee of Safety appointed when the war began, but he was from the first a member of this new one. The second fact was that Cromwell's appointment as Lieutenant General of the Army of the Eastern Association. He had been practically Manchester's second-in-command since the army was formed, and on January 22, 1644, he received his commission. The appointment had important results, political as well as military. Manchester himself, a sweet, meek man, says the Presbyterian Bailey, permitted his lieutenant-general to guide all the army at his pleasure. Of Cromwell, he adds, the man is a very wise and active head, universally well-beloved, 
as religious and stout, being a known independent most of the soldiers who loved new ways put themselves under his command. Thus Cromwell's influence spread to the whole army of the Eastern Association, and officers and men became permeated by the spirit of his regiment. By March 1644, Manchester's army was reported to be 15,000 strong. Neither, said a newspaper, is his army so formidable in number as exact in discipline, and that they might be all of one mind in religion, as of resolution in the field. With a severe eye he hath looked into the manners of those all who are his officers, and cashiered those whom he found to be in any way irregular in their lives or disaffected to the cause. End of chapter 5 Recording by Avindus